0: Section 13 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corrie Samuel. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 13 this digression i trust will not be censured as it relates to a matter exceedingly curious and very intimately connected with johnson both as a man and an author he this year wrote the preface to the Harleian miscellany the selection of the pamphlets of which it was composed was made by mr oldis a man of eager curiosity and indefatigable diligence who first exerted that spirit of inquiry into the literature of the old english writers By which the works of our great dramatic poet have of late been so signally illustrated. In seventeen forty five, he published a pamphlet entitled Miscellaneous Observations on the Tragedy of Macbeth, with remarks on Sir T. H.'s, Sir Thomas Hanmer's, edition of Shakespeare, to which he affixed proposals for a new edition of that poet. As we do not trace anything else published by him during the course of this year, we may conjecture that he was occupied entirely with that work. But the little encouragement which was given by the public to his anonymous proposals for the execution of a task which Warburton was known to have undertaken, probably damped his ardour. His pamphlet, however, was highly esteemed, and was fortunate enough to obtain the approbation even of the supercilious Warburton himself, who in the preface to his Shakespeare, published two years afterwards, thus mentioned it as to all those things which have been published under the titles of essays remarks observations etc on shakespeare if you accept some critical notes on macbeth given as a specimen of a projected edition and written as appears by a man of parts and genius the rest are absolutely below a serious notice of this flattering distinction shown him by warburton a very grateful remembrance was ever entertained by johnson who said he praised me at a time when praise was of value to me. 1746. Tartus thirty seven. In seventeen forty six it is probable that he was still employed upon his Shakespeare, which perhaps he laid aside for a time, upon account of the high expectations which were formed of Warburton's edition of that great poet. It is somewhat curious that his literary career appears to have been almost totally suspended in the years seventeen forty five and seventeen forty six those years which were marked by a civil war in great britain when a rash attempt was made to restore the house of stuart to the throne that he had a tenderness for that unfortunate house is well known and some may fancifully imagine that a sympathetic anxiety impeded the exertion of his intellectual powers but i am inclined to think that he was during this time sketching the outlines of his great philological work none of his letters during those years are extant so far as i can discover this is much to be regretted it might afford some entertainment to see how he then expressed himself to his private friends concerning state affairs dr adams informs me that at this time a favourite object which he had in contemplation was the life of alfred in which from the warmth with which he spoke about it he would, I believe, had he been master of his own will, have engaged himself, rather than on any other subject. 1747. Itatis 38. In 1747, it is supposed that the gentleman's magazine for May was enriched by him with five short poetical pieces, distinguished by three asterisks. The first is a translation, or rather a paraphrase, of a latin epitaph on sir thomas hanmer whether the latin was his or not i have never heard though i should think it probably was if it be certain that he wrote the english as to which my only cause of doubt is that his slighting character of hanmer as an editor in his observations on macbeth is very different from that in the epitaph it may be said that there is the same contrariety between the character in the observations and that in his own preface to Shakespeare, but a considerable time elapsed between the one publication and the other, whereas the observations and the epitaph came close together. The others are to Miss Blank, on her giving the author a gold and silk network purse of her own weaving, Stella in Mourning, The Winter's Walk, An Ode, and to Lycee an Elderly Lady. I am not positive that all these were his productions, But as the winter's walk has never been controverted to be his, and all of them have the same mark, it is reasonable to conclude that they are all written by the same hand. Yet to the ode, in which we find a passage very characteristic of him, being a learned description of the gout, Unhappy, to whom beds of pain, arthritic tyranny consigns, There is the following note, the author being ill of the gout, But Johnson was not attacked with that distemper till at a very late period of his life. May not this, however, be a poetical fiction. Why may not a poet suppose himself to have the gout, as well as suppose himself to be in love, of which we have innumerable instances, and which has been admirably ridiculed by Johnson in his life of Cowley? I have also some difficulty to believe that he could produce such a group of conceits as appear in the verses till I see in which he claims for this ancient personage as good a right to be assimilated to heaven as nymphs whom other poets have flattered he therefore ironically ascribes to her the attributes of the sky in such stanzas as this her teeth the night with darkness dies she's starred with pimples o'er her tongue like nimble lightning plies and can with thunder roar but. As at a very advanced age he could condescend to trifle in namby-pamby rhymes to please Mrs. Thrale and her daughter, he may have, in his earlier years, composed such a piece as this. It is remarkable that in this first edition of The Winter's Walk the concluding line is much more Johnsonian than it was afterwards printed, for in subsequent editions, after praying Stella to snatch him to her arms, he says— and shield me from the ills of life whereas in the first edition it is and hide me from the sight of life a horror at life in general is more consonant with johnson's habitual gloomy cast of thought i have heard him repeat with great energy the following verses which appeared in the gentleman's magazine for april this year but i have no authority to say they were his own indeed one of the best critics of our age suggests to me That the word indifferently being used in the sense of without concern and being also very unpoetical renders it improbable that they should have been his composition on lord lovett's execution pitied by gentle minds kilmarnock died the brave balmerino were on thy side radcliffe unhappy in his crimes of youth steady in what he still mistook for truth Beheld his death so decently unmoved, The soft lamented, and the brave approved. But Lovett's fate indifferently we view, True to no king, to no religion true, No fair forgets the ruin he has done, No child laments the tyrant of his son. No Tory pities thinking what he was, No Whig compassions, for he left the cause, The brave regret not, for he was not brave, The honest mourn not, knowing him a knave. This year, his old pupil and friend, David Garrick, having become joint patentee and manager of Drury Lane Theatre, Johnson honoured his opening of it with a prologue, which for just and manly dramatic criticism on the whole range of the English stage, as well as for poetical excellence, is unrivalled. Like the celebrated epilogue to the distressed mother, it was, during the season, often called for by the audience. The most striking and brilliant passages of it have been so often repeated, and are so well recollected by all the lovers of the drama and of poetry, that it would be superfluous to point them out. In the gentleman's magazine for December this year, he inserted an ode on winter, which is, I think, an admirable specimen of his genius for lyric poetry but the year seventeen forty seven is distinguished as the epoch when johnson's arduous and important work his dictionary of the english language was announced to the world by the publication of its plan or prospectus how long this immense undertaking had been the object of his contemplation i do not know I once asked him by what means he had attained to that astonishing knowledge of our language, by which he was enabled to realise a design of such extent, and accumulated difficulty. He told me that it was not the effect of particular study, but that it had grown up in his mind insensibly. I have been informed by Mr. James Doddsley that several years before this period, when Johnson was one day sitting in his brother Robert's shop, he heard his brother suggest to him that a dictionary of the English language would be a work that would be well received by the public, that Johnson seemed at first to catch at the proposition, but, after a pause, said in his abrupt, decisive manner, I believe I shall not undertake it. That he, however, had bestowed much thought upon the subject before he published his plan, is evident from the enlarged, clear and accurate views which it exhibits, and we find him mentioning in that tract that many of the writers whose testimonies were to be produced as authorities were selected by pope which proves that he had been furnished probably by mr robert dodsley with whatever hints that eminent poet had contributed towards a great literary project that had been the subject of important consideration in a former reign the booksellers who contracted with johnson single and unaided for the execution of a work which in other countries has not been effected but by the co-operating exertions of many, were Mr. Robert Doddsley, Mr. Charles Hitch, Mr. Andrew Miller, the two messieurs Longman, and the two messieurs Napton. The price stipulated was fifteen hundred and seventy-five pounds. The plan was addressed to Philip Dormer, Earl of Chesterfield, then one of His Majesty's principal secretaries of state, a nobleman who was very ambitious of literary distinction, and who, upon being informed of the design, had expressed himself in terms very favourable to its success. There is, perhaps, in everything of any consequence, a secret history which it would be amusing to know, could we have it authentically communicated. Johnson told me, Sir, the way in which the plan of my dictionary came to be inscribed to Lord Chesterfield was this. I had neglected to write it by the time appointed. Dodsley suggested a desire to have it addressed to lord chesterfield i laid hold of this as a pretext for delay that it might be better done and let Dodsley have his desire i said to my friend dr bathurst now if any good comes of my addressing to lord chesterfield it will be ascribed to deep policy when in fact it was only a casual excuse for laziness it is worthy of observation that the plan has not only the substantial merit of comprehension, perspicuity, and precision, but that the language of it is unexceptionably excellent, it being altogether free from that inflation of style, and those uncommon but apt and energetic words, which in some of his writings have been censured, with more petulance than justice. And never was there a more dignified strain of compliment than that in which he caught the attention of one who, he had been persuaded to believe, would be a respectable patron. "'With regard to questions of purity or propriety,' says he, "'I was once in doubt whether I should not attribute to myself too much "'in attempting to decide them, "'and whether my province was to extend beyond the proposition of the question "'and the display of the suffrages on each side. "'But I have been since determined by your lordship's opinion "'to interpose my own judgment.' and shall therefore endeavor to support what appears to me most consonant to grammar and reason orsonius thought that modesty forbade him to plead inability for a task to which caesar had judged him equal cur mi pessae negem posse quod ille putat and i may hope my lord that since you whose authority in our language is so generally acknowledged have commissioned me to declare my own opinion I shall be considered as exercising a kind of vicarious jurisdiction, and that the power which might have been denied to my own claim will be readily allowed me as the delegate of your lordship. This passage proves that Johnson's addressing his plan to Lord Chesterfield was not merely in consequence of the result of a report by means of Doddsley that the earl favoured the design, but that there had been a particular communication with his lordship concerning it, Dr. Taylor told me that Johnson sent his plan to him in manuscript for his perusal, and that when it was lying upon his table, Mr. William Whitehead happened to pay him a visit, and being shown it, was highly pleased with such parts of it as he had time to read, and begged to take it home with him, which he was allowed to do, that from him it got into the hands of a noble lord, who carried it to Lord Chesterfield. When Taylor observed this might be an advantage, Johnson replied, no sir it would have come out with more bloom if it had not been seen before by anybody the opinion conceived of it by another noble author appears from the following extract of a letter from the earl of orrery to dr Birch. Caledon, december thirtieth seventeen forty seven i have just now seen the specimen of mr johnson's dictionary addressed to lord chesterfield I am much pleased with the plan, and I think the specimen is one of the best that I have ever read. Most specimens disgust, rather than prejudice us, in favour of the work to follow. But the language of Mr. Johnson's is good, and the arguments are properly and modestly expressed. However, some expressions may be cavilled at, but they are trifles. I'll mention one. The barren laurel. The laurel is not barren in any sense whatever. It bears fruits and flowers said High St. Nagai, and I have great expectation from the performance. That he was fully aware of the arduous nature of the undertaking, he acknowledges, and shows himself perfectly sensible of it in the conclusion of his plan, but he had a noble consciousness of his own abilities, which enabled him to go on with undaunted spirit. Dr. Adams found him one day busy at his dictionary, when the following dialogue ensued. Adams this is a great work sir how are you to get all the etymologies johnson why sir here is a shelf with junius and skinner and others and there is a welsh gentleman who has published a collection of welsh proverbs who will help me with the welsh adams but sir how can you do this in three years johnson sir i have no doubt that i can do it in three years adams but the french academy Which consists of forty members, took forty years to compile their dictionary. Johnson. Sir, thus it is. This is the proportion. Let me see. Forty times forty is sixteen hundred. As three to sixteen hundred, so is the proportion of an Englishman to a Frenchman. With so much ease and pleasantry could he talk of that prodigious labor which he had undertaken to execute. The public has had from another pen a long detail of what had been done in this country by prior lexicographers, and no doubt Johnson was wise to avail himself of them, so far as they went. But the learned, yet judicious research of etymology, the various, yet accurate display of definition, and the rich collection of authorities, were reserved for the superior mind of our great philologist. For the mechanical part he employed, as he told me, six amanuenses, and let it be remembered by the natives of north britain to whom he is supposed to have been so hostile that five of them were of that country there were two messieurs MacBean, mr shiels who we shall hereafter see partly wrote the lives of the poets to which the name of sibber is affixed mr stewart son of mr george stewart bookseller at edinburgh and a mr maitland the sixth of these humble assistants was mr payton who I believe taught French, and published some elementary tracts. To all these painful labourers, Johnson showed a never-ceasing kindness, so far as they stood in need of it. The elder Mr. Macbean had afterwards the honour of being librarian to Archibald, Duke of Argyle, for many years, but was left without a shilling. Johnson wrote for him a preface to A System of Ancient Geography, and by the favour of Lord Thurlow, got him admitted a poor brother of the charterhouse for shiels who died of a consumption he had much tenderness and it has been thought that some choice sentences in the lives of the poets were supplied by him peyton when reduced to penury had frequent aid from the bounty of johnson who at last was at the expense of burying both him and his wife while the dictionary was going forward johnson lived part of the time in holborn gough square fleet street and he had an upper room fitted up like a counting-house for the purpose in which he gave to the copyists their several tasks the words partly taken from other dictionaries and partly supplied by himself having been first written down with spaces left between them he delivered in writing their etymologies definitions and various significations the authorities were copied from the books themselves in which he had marked the passages with a black lead pencil, the traces of which could easily be effaced. I have seen several of them, in which that trouble had not been taken, so that they were just as when used by the copyists. It is remarkable that he was so attentive in the choice of the passages in which words were authorised, that one may read page after page of his dictionary with improvement and pleasure, and it should not pass unobserved, that he has quoted no author whose writings had a tendency to hurt sound religion and morality. End of section thirteen.